Look, Chris, it's a whole family of wasps. So, um, hi. Sean again with you with the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. Episode, is it 30? It's 31, right? Yeah, it's 31, in which uh, the topic is the homebrew called Wasp. Developed by Mark Ball. Some of you know him better as Groovy B. So, uh, gonna look into that. And, uh, what else have you? Um, well, all right. This, there's something I just want to get off my chest right away. And, uh, I feel kind of bad about it. I didn't realize it until I actually listened to the episode after it was posted, after it made all the the, the iTunes feed or well, okay. I, I hear other podcasters call it Apple was Apple podcasts, but I still use iTunes. I mean, I, uh, I still have a iPod. I use an iPod to listen to my podcasts and I'm talking about the click wheel iPod. And there's a reason for that. The reason I do that is, well, first of all, the iPod classic can hold 160 gigabytes and I need that much space for the stuff I listen to. I mean, yeah, there's like, you can use a smartphone for that, but smartphones only go so high and smartphones don't have tactile response. It's all touch screens. Like if I'm driving and I want to skip a song or something, I just want to be able to reach down without having to take my eyes off the road and just press a button and skip to the next song. And I don't want to have to say Siri, skip the song or something like that. I don't want to have to do that. And, um, There's reasons that I have a separate iPod, you know, the class. And the thing is, you still need to use iTunes for the click wheel iPods. So uh, that's why I say iTunes, because that's what I know. And oh, by the way, actually, I take it back. My 160 gigabyte iPod, I hacked it with one of those thingies where you can actually use a uh, SD card. And I have a 200 gigabyte SD card in there now because I need that much space for the stuff I listen to partly because I have a lot of music and stuff and I I love my music. I want to have my whole collection available in my hand. And if I'm suddenly in the mood to hear something that I normally wouldn't be able to fit on a smartphone, guess what? It's right there. And also the uh, SD card method, it's faster than the hard drive that shipped with uh, the iPods. iPod hard drives, those things are slow. I didn't realize that, but they're slow. The only problem I have is that if I drop my iPod, which I do because iPods can be slippery and I'm a a doofus, if it hits the ground too hard, the SD card pops out of place and I have to pry open the iPod and reseat it and and everything. So uh, that's the only problem I have with it. But also there are some things that I just cannot compress to MP3 format. My ears are very sensitive I can tell MP3s a lot of times. So for some of my absolute favorite music, I leave it in a lossless compression. Well, that would have to be Apple lossless because the iPod does not support flack, unfortunately. So uh, that's another reason I need that much space. But anyway, that's not the thing I was going to address. What I was going to address was, again, when I was listening to the previous episode, In my iPod, after it was released, I'll put it to you that way, I kind of noticed that there's one thing that I mentioned that I kind of just brushed off my shoulder, and it might have come across as insensitive, and I totally didn't mean that at all. And it was when I was talking about 
the Scammer Brawler segment and the three alleged scammers that that game was originally based on. One of them was an Atari Age user named Janet Maddox Garay. That was that person's Atari Age username. And I talked about how someone had found out that there was such a real person as Janet Maddox Garay. And one possibility was that it was not that person. In fact, a likely possibility was it wasn't that person, but somebody else basically using her name and a picture of her as an Atari Age profile. And I mentioned that she was interviewed in a documentary about shaken baby syndrome. And that's the thing that I kind of disturbed me was that, wait a minute, I kind of just casually mentioned that it was, it was in a very mocking segment. I absolutely did not mean it that way. I really didn't. Nobody complained. In fact, when I posted about this on, uh, I think it was the Facebook group. I said, I, there's something I really need to address because I feel bad about it. One response I got was, oh, come on, we're all adults. We can handle whatever it is. Well, I still, I, I really do feel bad about that. I mean, this whether or not Janet maddox Gray was the person on Atari Age and not somebody using her name, that's a terrible thing to have to go through. She lost a grandchild through shaken baby syndrome, and it was at the hands, I believe, of her son-in-law. And that's got to be really, really terrible to have somebody in your family do that to somebody. And uh, I, th- I think one of the reasons that it just that it just kind of disturbed me that I kind of felt insensitive about it after listening was that my parents know what it's like to lose a baby. They they do. I have a brother who died about seven, yeah, I guess seven, seven and a half years before I was born. And for someone to have to go through that, that's a terrible thing. And to, I mean, my, my parents are in their seventies now. My dad is 70. He's going to be 78 very soon. And my mother just turned 75. And to this day, this was over 50 years ago. It's in fact, it might've been 51 years to the day I'm recording this, that my brother died. And to this day, my mother doesn't like talking about him because it's just too it, it's just still too fresh in her memory going through that terrible loss. Uh, recently, she just kind of brought him up. She's like, well, you know, when your brother Jay was in the hospital and blah, blah, blah. And, and I asked her kind of a follow-up. I asked her something I always wondered. And, and she answered my question. She said, but I really don't like talking about this. So I, I can only – I don't even want to imagine what, the, what uh, Janet and her family are probably still going through undoubtedly. But uh, – I just had to address it. I'm sorry to be such a downer, I, uh, but I got that off my chest. And um, now that I did, I'm ready to have a little bit of fun and talk about some Atari stuff and other things that have been going on in my life, in case you care. <laughs> By the way, I have been talking about recently how I real I'm realizing that I'm coming to the end of the line in terms of homebrew games to talk about, which means that I kind of have to talk about Pac-Man collection soon. I've mentioned how I've been working on that little by little for a long time. In fact, uh, just so you know, this is a little, uh, a little, uh, spoiler in that episode, you will hear me announce dates throughout the episode. And you'll notice that those dates are all over the place. The dates that I announced, they are the dates in which those segments were recorded, just to give you an idea of how much of a time span it required for me to prep the episode. Now, why am I mentioning this? Well, the reason I'm mentioning this is because 
I talked about in a previous episode that once this podcast has to go on hiatus for literally nothing to talk about, I'm going to be doing another podcast and it's not going to be a video game specific podcast, although I'm sure I will be talking about video games now and then, and it's going to be called autobiography of a schnook. And, uh, I sent out a survey on Google forms basically just to get a feel for the kind of things that people want to hear or don't want to hear in a podcast, in any kind of podcast, really, whether it be video games or not. What's the ideal length of time an episode should last? Do you like background music in an episode? Things like that. And something I realized is that an overwhelming majority of people who responded, the sweet spot for episode length is between 30 and 60 minutes. And, um, thing is the Pac-Man collection episode is going to be huge. It's going to be huge. It's going to be at the very least two and a half hours long if I did my calculations correctly. So I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I don't know if I'm going to break that up into smaller parts and maybe two or three parts and just have them as separate episodes, or if I'm just going to have one giant episode on that, I really don't know what I'm going to do about that. So, uh, I don't know if I should be aiming toward that sweet spot of 30 to 60 minutes or just say, you know what? Screw it. Let's just cram it all in one giant episode that might take all day to listen to. I really don't know. But speaking of that, I am really, really excited because I have made moves toward getting the pokey version of Pac-Man collection. I mean, yeah, I could play it on my Mateos cartridge, but I really want the actual thing, the real thing. For one thing, if... If I want to do some more competitive gaming, like uh, maybe put a score in Twin Galaxies or something, I want to show that it's the real thing. I don't want to try to say, look, yes, I'm using a ROM, but I promise you it's the real thing. It's the de- it's the official Bob Crescenzo ROM. I don't want to have to go through all that. I want the real thing. And also, I want to support Bob. I want to support Atari Age. So I reached out to uh, Albert on Atari Age. And I said, hey, Albert, I'm hearing about people who are getting the pokey version of Pac-Man collection. How can I get that? And he said, well, yeah, it's not in the store yet. I haven't gotten around to doing that, but here's what you can do. You can send me, I think he said, $40 plus a pokey chip or a ball blazer cartridge, and I'll get you Pac-Man collection. So what I did was I went online. I, I do have a pokey chip lying around somewhere, but number one, I can't find it because as I mentioned before, I'm really going through a major rehab project in this room where I'm recording and it's in here somewhere and I can't find it. And number two, I know that the froggy homebrew is one of those games that requires a pokey. And I want to have that pokey chip waiting in case I need to use that in case I need to send that in to get a pokey version of froggy. So I went online and found the cheapest copy of ball blazer that I could ball blazer prices are going up folks. They're really going up at least on eBay just a year or two ago. I was able to get a boxed copy of ball blazer for like 10 bucks. Now I had to pay, I think 15 bucks just for the cartridge. And it was the first silver label ball blazer I've ever seen. All the other ball blazers I've seen, the loose copy that I used to have, the boxed copy that I replaced it with, the ball blazer cartridges that I saw at the store, all dark red labels. So this is the first uh, silver label that I'd ever seen. So I got that. And then I boxed up all the loose Rarity 1, Rarity 2, according to the Atari Age Guide at least, Rarity 1, Rarity 2, 2600 games. 
and sent them all out to Albert because Albert will take, uh, I believe, Atari and Coleco. That is, uh, Coleco made Atari 2600 cartridges and use those shells to manufacture homebrews with. It'll give you a little bit of a discount to using the Atari Age store. So I sent that stuff in, and now I play the waiting game. <laughs> and I wanted to make sure I did that nice and early so I could have a copy of Pac-Man Collection with Pokey in time for Midwest Gaming Classic. Because last year, last year, there, there were a couple of games. There was, I think, Super Pac- Yeah, there was Super Pac-Man and one of the variations on Pac-Man Collection in which somebody had taken over my Twin Galaxies high score and I wanted to take it back. So I figured, hey, Midwest Gaming Classic would be a great time to do that. So I think it happened again, so that's one reason. And also, I just want to show it off for people, you know, give people a reason to uh, to consider an Atari 7800 if they don't have one already and also to check out the homebrews on them, support their developers. So I'm going to have this... Uh, I'm going to have my Atari 7800 there at Midwest Gaming Classic at the Pie Factory podcast table, and I'll have some games available. I'll have my Ed Ladin controllers. Oh, yeah, controllers, plural. Yeah, I got my Ed Ladin Super Twin, and really, oh, man, I love this thing so much. I really, really do. It's amazing. Uh, I'm holding it in my hand right now, and I last night, the night before I'm recording this, I used it for the first time on Robotron 2084, and sure enough, I got higher in that game than I ever got before in my life. I got like 300 and some thousand, still nothing to write home about, but it sure beats like the 120,000 that I once luckily got using only one joystick, but the Super Twin's nice. And something I, I never realized from looking at the pictures, but until it actually arrived, the Super Twin 78 is actually a fairly small controller. Uh, I guess it's because I'm used to the... Uh, I'll play 4.8, which is pretty wide. It literally spans more than your entire lap. But the Super Twin is actually a narrow controller, and uh, it's very, very well done, and I'm, I'm just really liking it. It's an eight-way controller. It's uh, you, you can hear right now that it has micro-switches. It's an eight-way micro-switch controller, but after I played Robotron, I played Donkey Kong PK and had a really good game on it, even on an eight-way controller. Donkey Kong is not an eight-way game, and uh, usually if you play a four-way game on an eight-way controller, ugh, the results can be disastrous. And I and yes, Ed Ladin does sponsor this podcast, but I would be singing the praises of this controller regardless because it is it's really worth the money. Um, I don't really have that kind of money laying around usually, but what I did was I put it on PayPal credit. So that way I could pay it off a little bit at a time. And uh, the cool thing about that is that uh, if you go over a certain amount on PayPal credit, which this controller does, you have something like six months interest free. So that's, that's a pretty nice deal. So pay it off a little bit every week and I'll have it paid for well within the six months. So uh, there we have it. Oh, and speaking of Pac-Man collection, Longtime friend and supporter of the podcast Great Offender drew my attention to a thread in Atari Age, two new Pac-Man-like games. And let me see what it says here. It's a post from Gambler172, that's Walter in Germany, and he said that there are new games released by Blue Azure, or made by Blue Azure. There's uh, 
Let's see, several years ago, Atari 7800 programmer Michael Farrell posted a nice rendition of the 2600 Pac-Man on the 7800 using the original 7800 Junior Pac-Man as a host. And through the years, Farrell has posted a, uh, or is it Farrell, um, not sure, has posted a bunch of 7800 Pac-Man games on YouTube. This year, we decided to update the game with new gadgets. We tried to contact him, but no answer. Uh, let's see the features of the, of this. Let's see. Um, Joe, um, I guess that's one of the uh, ghosts that they named or monsters, whatever you want to call them in this rendition, has been updated to Clyde using the existing limited bytes available. It works. We're sharing this game so we can play it forward to the next coder who might update this to 2600 sound. That tep, that's uh, Perry who did the Donkey Kong PK homebrew that uh, Tep exhibited in Pac-Man Collection Sound Hack. There are eight slots for mazes, but at this point, all eight are identical. And let's see, some of the features they listed, five player one start lives, intermission viewable at the start of the game, rack numbers and scoring field, works in player two mode as well, meaning that next to your score, you'll see what level you're on, remaining dot counter display, so you always know how many dots remain on screen, introducing RPD, retain position direction, so when the player dies, he restarts right where he was, which is handy for a horizontal scroller game. The direction is now set to left, as there can be Pac-Man runaway when he returns going to the right. Invoked International Free Roaming, IFR, so the fruit freely wanders around the whole maze until the player munches it. So I guess it doesn't uh, disappear, is that what it says? Turn blue activated upon munching the fruit. Ooh, that's kind of a Pac-Man Plus thing there. High score cart is deactivated for obvious reasons. Oh, okay, the 2600. I think he means a 2600 Junior Pac Man. Uh, oh, wow. I, oh, I need to see this. I need to see this. Uh, oh, that's interesting. I, I'm not quite sure exactly what this is. I haven't had a chance to try it out yet, but uh, let me try it. Then there's also, let's see, Slime Time 2, based on the original Slime Time released by Joshua. Uh, let's see, almost exactly a year ago, Atari 7800 blogger Joshua posted a fine game Slime Time on 7800 Hacks, on Atari Age, I guess. Unfortunately, it seems hardly anyone noticed it. We played it and loved it. It seems Joshua has packed and departed, and for us it was sad because he had done such a great job and then no fanfare. He was an Atari Age member for 13 years. We tried to contact him, but no answer. Maybe he or someone who knows him can contact us at Atari78in84 at yahoo.com. We'd love to exchange what we have for whatever he may have done with the game since. In Slime Time 2, the pizza message has been added, the hot dog changed, and the skateboard changed. The rest of Joshua's stamps, uh, sprites I think, have been maintained as they were. Um, I ne Yeah, I never heard of this thing. Let me see if I can find a video of... Slime time here on YouTube. Let's give them this possible formos me coha. Let's go. Even if I do a Google search, I can't find it, but hmm. But uh, the ROM is I'll post a link to this in the show notes, by the way. But the ROM for Slime Time 2 is in the uh the thread. So if you want to play Slime Time 2, it's there. You can use it in an emulator, your Mateos cart, your cuddle cart, whatever. Let's see, five player one start lives. All new fruit, expert development by Joshua, slightly modified in Slime Time 2. Uh, it is a junior Pac-Man derivative. It now has a fourth intermission viewable at the start of the game. That's good, because I get tired of that third one. 
plus mode activated at the eighth rack. So you play seven normal racks and then seven plus mode racks. Well, that's interesting. Faster player speed to boost players' confidence. Rack numbers and scoring field. Remaining dot counter display. Retain position direction. International free roaming. Turn blue activated upon munching the fruit. All new 6,400 bonus score for the fourth fruit. That's interesting there. This gains 800 plus 1,600 plus 3,200 plus 6,400 to total 12,000 bonus points. Must be some kind of record. Okay, I see what I see what they're talking about. If the, you eat the fourth bonus prize, then it turns the monsters blue, and those are the point values. 800, 1,600, 3,200, 6,400. And actually, I believe it's... Yeah, uh, Pac-Land was the first game to go over the 1,600 points because you could eat five monsters in Pac-Land and the fifth one would be worth 3,200 points. And the thing is, if if you remember in the arcade game Pac-Land, there's a part about halfway through the first round in which the monsters are dropping miniature monsters on you and you have to wear a protective helmet or else if they landed on you, you'd die. Well, if you ate an Energizer while the little tiny monsters were dropping, they would turn blue, and if you happen to eat them, they would be worth the same point value. And something that I noticed on there is that, uh, let's say you eat all five of the main monsters, Inky, Blinky, Pinky, Clyde, and Sue. That's obviously 3,200 points for the last one you ate. If you also ate any of the um, tiny monsters that were being dropped, your next score would be, 7,680 or whatever the Namco magic number is. Uh, 7,650, that's what it is. So it went 200, 400, 800, 1600, 3200, and then 7,650. That's what it was. But uh, Great Offender, thank you so much for pointing that out to me. This is very fascinating news. And uh, I got to dig out my Mateos cart and try these suckers. Oh, there's one other thing I think I should get off my chest. I've only mentioned this to a few people, but. This podcast, this is podcast number two for me. Uh, You've heard me mention before, even in this episode, I've mentioned before that I host another podcast, Pie Factory Podcast, and uh, I've been co-hosting that one for almost three years, and that one actually takes up a lot of my time, and when I decided I wanted to do this podcast, the Homebrew Podcast, I realized, you know what? Pie Factory takes up a lot of my time, but I really, really want to do this homebrew podcast. I really do. So my wife knows how much time Pie Factory takes up for me, how much work I put into it. So I, I never told her about this other this podcast right here that I do this other podcast, mainly because I didn't want her to give me a hard time about you know, doing two of those podcasts. Thing is, the 7800 homebrew podcast takes up hardly any time it really ta- it's very easy for me to do i just record the segments as i'm getting ready for work um i'm getting ready for work right now and i'm about to leave as soon as i stop recording this and a lot of times i do my editing on the way to work in the train sometimes i'll do it during my lunch break and it takes practically no time I mean, it's a lot easier editing a single host podcast than having to deal with a sec with a multiple host podcast, making sure everything gets proper. And, uh, when you send it off for editing, that it gets back in time and everything. And there were some people telling me, they're like, you know, you know, you don't want to keep secrets from anybody. You shouldn't. So I have told my wife about my idea for the 
autobiography of a schnook podcast and that I was absolutely going to do it. And I told her, I said, you know, I've been doing my own standalone podcast without Jim for well over a year. And it's really easy to do because it's like, and she just, and her response to that was, oh, really? Well, where do you want to go to lunch today? So that was, I was like, really, that's it. I'm not going to get a heart. I mentioned it again, just to make sure she heard me. She's like, she's like, well, as long as you're having fun, I guess, you know, you just do what you want to do. You're grown up. (laughs) So yeah, I at least got that off my chest and, uh, I don't have that hanging over my head and I feel a lot better. So yeah, yeah. The truth will set you free. Um, it's not that I ever lied. I never said that I don't do a second. I just never mentioned it. That's all there is to it. But oh, feels good. Oh, so anyway, you know what? Let me stop babbling. Uh, I should get into the topic of the episode, and that is the game Wasp. So Wasp is the first homebrew released by Mark Ball, also known as Groovy Bee on Atari Age. And Mark was proud of the fact that Wasp was written not in assembly language or 7800 basic, but C, using the CC65 development system for 6502 processors, such as the one inside the Atari 7800. Well, the game was primarily designed in C, at least. The graphics, I believe, were done in assembly language, and in fact, most games on the 7800 are done in assembly language. And of course, we do know that there are some homebrews done in 7800 BASIC. Unfortunately, support for CC65 ended in 2013, but hey, at least we had it long enough to get some homebrews out of it, right? But um, Wasp itself was at first meant just to be a technical demo using the various pieces of code that Mark kept in a library for graphics and game design. And he would make other games with that library if he found that Wasp would run fast enough on an actual Atari 7800. He only tested the game in emulation, actually, at least in the beginning. From the beginning, Mark had apologized for what he called programmer graphics, and uh, that's basically in reference to the belief, some say unfair, Uh, From my own personal experience, I say, yeah, it's true. (laughs) But uh, the programmer graphics is referring to the common belief that programmers cannot design. (laughs) And uh, I am living proof that programmers can't design. (laughs) That's why we have separate designers and separate programmers usually. But anyway, Wasp was first introduced on April 1st, 2009 on Atari Age. Mark had posted screen caps and a ROM file for use in emulators or a rewritable cartridge. At this point, the game was NTSC only, which is particularly interesting given that Mark is actually in England, where they use PAL primarily. But the reason that the game was only NTSC at this point was that Mark was developing the game using an emulator, although he did plan to work on a PAL version once he got his Atari 7800 development system up and running. The goal of the game is that you are a some sort of person or elf or something, but your job is to collect mushrooms and avoid wasps. Short and simple. No weapons, no shields, no power-ups. Just collect the mushrooms and avoid wasps. There was a problem, though. Many people couldn't run the game. It wouldn't work on an actual 7800, and many emulators wouldn't touch it. I believe it had something to do with what's called signing on the binary file that was used. I don't quite know what that means. Uh, 
Yeah, I said several times I am a programmer myself. I'm a very high-level programmer. Atari 7800 programming is lower level and ergo much more advanced than what I know how to do. Anyway, Atari Age user Atarian63 said that he'd be happy to buy the game on a cartridge, but Mark commented, well, I don't think the game's good enough to be made into a cartridge. Why not? Well, the difficulty level didn't change as you progressed through the game, and there was no way to restock the character's energy. And I'll talk more about that later, by the way. And again, Mark explained it was a demo. It was primarily a demo built around a game engine. But he also posted a mock-up of a possible other, as of yet, untitled homebrew that he was thinking of doing if the game engine proved viable. On April 4th, Mark posted updated binaries that fixed some issues that testers were having, particularly using the Cuddle Cart 2. I don't know if I ever mentioned the Cuddle Cart before on this podcast, but for those of you who don't know what that is, the Cuddle Cartridge, I believe, is a single-game rewritable cartridge for the Atari 7800, meaning you can only put one game on it, unlike, say, the Mateos Cart, which allows you 16 games, and uh, the Concerto Cart, which is a SD card-based rewritable cartridge. But the Cuddle Cart is a hot commodity. That thing has been out of production for a long time. I think the cheapest I've seen it go for since, uh, as long as I've been an Atari 7800 user for about 10 years now, I think the cheapest I've ever seen that thing go for was 200 bucks. But getting back to these updated binaries, Mark still found a few issues and posted another tweaked ROM later that day. But still, there were some people having some issues with emulators that were basically not the Pro System emulator. And those who were testing the game on actual 7800 hardware were seeing sprite rendering issues. That is, sprites not rendering at all. There was an updated ROM posted the next day, but Mark was still concerned that he wouldn't be able to make any significant updates until he got his development RAM cart up and running. And uh, he designed that development RAM cart himself. June 8th, and yeah, if you're counting, that's two months. Well, even as early as May, Mark was saying, hey, real life is getting in the way. I have to put the development aside for a little bit. But the good news at this point was that he figured out how to get Wasp running on real Atari 7800 hardware and concluded that it is possible to write Atari 7800 arcade-style games in C and use a graphics support library written in assembly language. The final ROM file that you could use in an emulator or a rewritable cartridge would be released after the release of the Atari 7800 birthday pack. Uh, wait a minute, what's this, the birthday pack? Well, more precisely, it was titled 25th Birthday Pack 1984 through 2009. And what is this birthday pack? It is a two-cartridge set containing Bob DiCrescenzo's 7800 interpretation of Space Invaders, with a few graphical tweaks by Gambler172. And Space Invaders was discussed in episode 9 of this podcast. And of course, the birthday pack contained Wasp. Each cartridge had a custom birthday edition artwork. And in the case of Wasp, the only difference in the game was it had a special birthday intro screen not present in the standard edition. Box art for the birthday pack, of course, came courtesy of Mark Oberhäuser. By the way, Mark Oberhäuser's website is down at the moment. They're having some problems over there. Mark said he hopes that it's going to be back up in a few days. But getting back to the history of Wasp, Mark started taking pre-orders on June 20th. 
He limited the pre-order list to 20, but then expanded it to 40. So up to 40 people got to pre-order it. July 17th, Mark received not one, but two packages of Wasp cartridges, one from CPU Wiz and Atari Age and another from Sean Sr. As a result, the original released batch of cartridges had two front-end label designs, one with the title in a dark red font above the phrase Atari 7800 Pro System and a black italic font face, and uh, that's the version I got from the Atari Age store, by the way. And the other design had the title in a thin black font, and again, written above the phrase Atari 7800 Pro System in what appears to be the same font. Moving on to September 4th, again, real life was getting in the way, causing yet another uh, more than a month, almost two months in delays. Mark had requested that payments be sent, and the deadline would be September 18th, which was my 10th wedding anniversary, by the way. And... Those who had missed the deadline would have their spots offered to those on a waiting list. September 23rd, all pre-ordered Wasp cartridges were shipped to their buyers, and the ROM file for the game was posted so people could play it in emulators and rewritable cartridges. Well, cartridge, because I believe at the time, the Cuddle Cart 2 was the only rewritable cartridge available. So there we go, short and sweet history of Wasp and... Uh, not hard to believe that it's so short, considering that the gameplay is pretty simple, and I'll talk about that right now. In Wasp, you have a black screen, and uh, you're basically in kind of a garden, and there are ten mushrooms in the garden, along with some other little tiny growths. And you control some kind of human-looking character, like I said before, looks kind of like an elf. I don't know, there's no manual with this game. On the cartridge artwork, though, it's just some guy bent over picking up a mushroom, so we'll just say some guy, I guess. But anyway, you move this guy around the screen with an eight-way joystick, and there are five wasps on the screen, and you want to avoid the wasp. You are given three lives, no extra lives as far as I can tell, and every time a wasp touches you at all, you lose some energy off kind of an energy meter. There's a green energy meter on the top of the screen. And once that energy meter is depleted, you lose a life. You get 100 points for every mushroom. And that's it. That's the game right there. When you clear a round full of mushrooms, you pick up all 10 of the mushrooms, you get a little transition screen that looks just like the transition screen in Robotron 2084. And that's, that's it. That's the game. That's it. That's all you need to know. Uh, it sounds very, very simple, and it, it is. And um, it is a lot of fun. I actually spent my, I actually found myself playing this thing over and over and over and over, and completely realizing that I should have been in bed for an hour, and realizing I had to get up early the next morning. So uh, yeah, I literally lost sleep over Wasp. And by the way, Wasp, in case you didn't notice, is W A S P exclamation point. So that's two out of two Mark Ball games that we covered in this podcast that have an exclamation point. And uh, by the way, for Wasp, you absolutely must have a Atari 7800 compatible two-button joystick in order to use it. The button isn't used in the gameplay at all, but you need it in order to start. I don't know why that is, but it's kind of like the Clax prototype that... Uh, you sometimes see for sales or reproduction, you need an actual 7800 compatible joystick, like a pain line or an Ed Ladin. Using an Atari CX40 for the 2600 is not going to work. 
The cartridge itself, it, it's designed in the style of a classic 7800 cartridge. It's got kind of a grayish, silverish background with uh, Atari in a black font and the original Atari typeface with 7800 in the big, bold, dark red font. And it says video game cartridge. There is custom artwork. And uh, like I said, there's a guy bending over, picking up mushrooms. And in front of him and behind him are two giant wasps each holding a knife and uh, what appears to be a spatula, and they're looking at him cut with an evil grin. And uh, I already talked about the end labels, but uh, that is Wasp. That's what you get when you get Wasp. Now, I already talked about how I feel about Wasp and how I literally lost sleep over it, so let's hear what others have to say, shall we? You know what? We haven't heard from the folks on Atari.io in a long time. By the way, that is a really friendly uh, forum over there. Check it out. Uh, it's not terribly active. It's uh, fairly tame over there, but the people there are so friendly. Uh, highly recommend checking it out. But anyway, over on Atari.io in the forums, Justin, who is uh, the administrator over there, says, other than it being an enjoyable game, is that Mark was able to complete and ship this game almost 10 years ago. This is one of those games that could have easily ended up in development hell, being announced and shown off and then taking years to come out. That did not happen. That was good action and a good decision making on his part, and I think the author of the game deserves credit for that. Great job. That's an interesting way of looking at it, Justin. Thank you, by the way. And that's really, the I think, the first time I got any kind of feedback from anybody specifically focusing on the development process. And if you look in the list of games that have been started for the Atari 7800 and never finished, and sadly, at least one of those never will be, at least by the original author, and I'll talk about that more in the next episode, it's just mind-boggling. A lot of abandonware in the world of Atari 7800 homebrews. So yeah, it's good. It's always great when one of these games comes through to the end and there's a final product. And if we move over to Atari Age, Sean says, quite simply, Wasp is good for a quick pick up and play. There we go. Short and simple. <laughs> and sure, yeah, just pick up, play it. Yeah, I commented how you don't get a manual with the game. You don't really need one. Just grab the mushrooms. Don't get stung, period. That's it. Easy to play, easy to learn. And not saying it's not challenging because it is. But uh, thank you again, Sean. And Toilet Tunes on Atari Age says, visually appealing, would benefit from increasing difficulty. Maybe it gets harder eventually, but if so, I haven't played that far yet. Toilet Tunes, it's interesting that Toilet Tunes mentions that, because as I was playing this game, I was keeping in mind that Mark had commented that he wanted to add increasing difficulty and a way to recharge your energy meter. And I don't see a way in the game to recharge your energy meter. But at the same time, I can't really tell. Did Mark actually put increasing difficulty? I can't really tell. As I was playing the game and getting further, I was wondering, is this actually getting harder? Or am I just losing my focus or what? It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell. I think the reason that it's hard to tell is that there's a lot of randomness in how stuff is generated. You might have three mushrooms right in one clump and you just swipe them in one grab or they might be spread there might be 10 mushrooms scattered in 10 completely different places i think it's the randomness that is the challenge in the game but thanks again toiletunes for 
your thoughts. And I got an email from Eugenio. He says, hello, Sean. Well, hello back at you, Eugenio. I hope all is well. I have to say that the previous episode was lots of fun to listen to. Well, thanks, Eugenio. You don't have to say that. Anyway, the background story about the Brawler games was great, but the stories about the scammers were just something else. I think I missed that drama in the forum. Pages upon pages also. Anyhow, here's my feedback for Wasp. Wasp started life as nothing more than a demo in programmer Mark Ball's first attempt at writing a game for the Atari 7800. It is also the first game for the console written in C programming language. The story of the game is set in the Enchanted Land, where it is the annual Mushroom Soup Festival. You want to participate in the festival, so you've headed to the woods to collect mushrooms to make your own special recipe of soup. Unfortunately, you accidentally stumble upon a nest of giant killer wasps, and the wasps are not happy, so they make a line straight for you. You must now avoid the wasps while tr- God, wasps is so weird to say over a microphone. You must now avoid the wasps while you try to collect the mushrooms for that soup. Wasp is a relatively simple yet enjoyable game for the 7800. The goal of the game is to survive as long as you possibly can while collecting mushrooms that appear on screen and avoiding the wasps, and that's all there is to it. There are no power-ups, no traps, no nothing else to alter the level of challenge of the game. The wasps themselves don't change much of how they behave. However, you have no weapons to use against them. Avoiding them can get tricky at all times, which is what keeps things interesting. The game does have gorgeous graphics with large character sprites that are nicely animated and may even remind players of Robotron and how it is set up and because of the tunnel transitions every time a level is completed. It would have been great if the game had difficulty levels to choose from or some options added for variety though. Despite this, the game is certainly fun and I can easily recommend it. And uh, that is Eugenio's thoughts on Wasp. And Eugenio, thank you so much for that insight. I did not know anything about the Mushroom Soup Festival. Oh, man. That's that's a festival I would not attend. I, I, I just can't deal with mushrooms. No way. Uh-uh. No. <laughs> but anyway, that this isn't about me. This is about... Oh, I see what's going on here. The, uh, the thing about the Mushroom Soup Festival in the Enchanted Land, which kind of explains why the character looks like an elf, I guess... That's from the Atari Age Store's description of the game. So that's where that comes from. Thank you for providing that, uh, Eugenio. I totally forgot about that. I, I got this game like three or four years ago, so I, I don't remember what the store says about that. And it is interesting. There, I do have one sense of logic, though, as to why you don't have weapons to use against the wasps. It still sounds weird, wasps. I hate that word. <laughs> I didn't before, but I do now. But the thing about the weapons to use against wasps, I think it makes perfect sense here in the context of this game. Because you're picking up mushrooms in order to consume them. What is the only real defense against a wasp? Well, pesticide. Do you really want raid all over the mushrooms you're going to put in a soup? And uh, assuming that you and people you like are probably going to eat that soup, no, you don't want to do that. So I can kind of see why, in a real-life sense, you wouldn't want to use some kind of weapon. But then again, this is the Enchanted Land, so 
I don't know what the rules of physics and physiology and anatomy are in the enchanted land. So I, I don't know. I don't know. But Eugenio, as usual, thank you for your thoughts. And should anybody else want to share thoughts on this or other homebrews that have been covered or have not yet been covered in this podcast, email me at homebrew78 at fab4it.com. And I take both text emails and audio emails. You know, I'm particularly proud of myself because I made it through this entire podcast without using any ridiculous sting or stung references. I, I don't do that. That's a little bit too easy. Instead, I just cut right to the chase and give you the material. And with the help of the following folks, I was able to do that with the help of Ed Ladden Controllers, Kyle Etter, Jimmy G, Gray Defender, Richard Grounds, and Richard Valdez. How did they help me? Well, they helped support this podcast financially at patreon.com slash homebrew78. Patreon being spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, of course. And uh, if you'd like to support this podcast, you also may do that. Go to that website, patreon.com slash homebrew78, and you can donate a dollar a month or more if you so desire. And uh, just to give you an idea of how that has helped me, at some point during this podcast, things got a little bit less noisy. Like you don't hear a lot of, a lot of like microphone movements. I noticed that with episode 30, you heard that a lot. Not this time because I was able to upgrade my recording setup a little bit. Now I have a shock mount on the microphone and oh, also this, you can't really tell from the recording, but something that helped me immensely was that I also got, uh, well, you know how in studios, like they have those little like boom arms. I don't know what they're actually. Yeah. I, I don't know what they're actually called, but there is a microphone hanging over one of those boom arms. And you just move it around instead of having it mounted on the desktop. You know, I got myself one of those too. Yeah. I bought myself one of those and I don't even know what it's called, but it's because of people helping out. So I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. In the meantime, you can reach me via email at homebrew78 at fab4it.com. And fab4it is spelled F-A-B, the number 4, I-T, and then, of course, .com. I keep mentioning how I'm going to put stuff in the show notes. Well, if you want to look at the show notes, the show notes are located at homebrew78.fab4it.com, and that is on the web. You can follow me on Twitter, and the handle is homebrew78. My YouTube channel is homebrew7800. Anywho, uh, oh yeah, I got another episode coming up. Uh, this is going to be a kind of obscure one. In fact, just to make sure you can follow along, I'm going to link this in the show notes too. Going back to 2005, 2005, going to talk about a game called Robot Finds Kitten. It's a uh, unusual one in many different ways, but I figured not be as good a time as any to examine that sucker. But thank you, everybody, for your time. Thank you for your listening. Thank you for your support. And please, while you're at it, make sure you're giving these hardworking homebrew developers the support they deserve so they can continue to make reasons for this podcast to exist. Well, Okay, if you don't like this podcast, support the homebrewers anyway, so they have reason to give you reason to keep playing your Atari 7800. 
talk to you again soon. 